So it is very good to be here today. I preached once a number of years ago in the summer in Concord, and I have been eager to come and preach here and be with you. Concord has been a longtime member congregation of the Urban Ministry and supported us and connected with us in many ways over time. Um, We're so grateful for the financial support that you've given us, both through grants and most recently through sharing your collection at the Christmas Eve service. Thank you for this. And there are other ways that people within this congregation uh, knit themselves together with the urban ministry. The Funderburg Scholars Program grew out of our programming and um, continues to support through textbooks and other assistance uh, the alum from our after-school program. And I hope I'll see you February 2nd at the Funderburg dinner here, with our led by our friend Loretta Ho Sherblum. Uh, We have people in the congregation like uh, Tony Rodriguez, who's been part of a task force to help us look at how we can help domestic violence survivors find jobs after they complete our workforce development program, or Wendy Holt, who helps us, um, some of our volunteers, encourage Unitarian Universalists from the suburbs to come into Roxbury and get to know some of the cultural institutions that are there and the richness that is there. And I especially want to just lift up and honor our very good friend, Beth Norton, your music director, wherever she is right now. She has been right in front of me. Uh, She has been uh, a true blue champion of the urban ministry through thick and thin and has done... um, She's invited choir members to come sing at our events, and she serves on our meeting house committee, which is thinking about how to revitalize our historic meeting house, and uh, I'm very grateful for uh, the champion that she is um, for the urban ministry. And I also want to just let you know, if you want to know more about the urban ministry after today's service, that I have some colleagues here who will be in social hour. Um, They are Greta Hagen and Annie Stubbs, and I think they're around somewhere um, Greta back there and Annie, so you can look for them after social hour to learn more about the work of the urban ministry. Uh, so I wonder, I'm wondering, has this ever happened to you? Has there ever come a day when you no longer could listen to the news? And so you turned off the radio or shut off the TV, folded up the newspaper, even removed the Facebook app from your phone? I've done that. Last summer, that happened to me. On the heels of news about immigrant families torn apart at the border, the rolling back of environmental protections and threats to our Mother Earth, I couldn't bear the news loop anymore. So I turned off the radio, and I looked for other ways to pass the time on my long daily commute into Roxbury. I began listening to audiobooks. I chose first 1776, a Pulitzer Prize-winning history of the military battles of that year. It may sound dry, but I listened rapt to how the Roxbury campus, where the urban ministry stands, played a key role during the siege of Boston, how patriot troops gathered on the green space where I walk daily, how General George Washington visited, The nitty-gritty details of that long-ago time was a lovely respite from the shoulder-tensing, heart-dropping news. Getting away from today by immersion in the long-ago was just the medicine that I needed. Thomas Jefferson, The Art of Power, was the book I listened to next. Jefferson lived in intense times, and he also shaped them. 
Inspired by Enlightenment ideals, he advocated for independence from Britain, drafted the Declaration of Independence, became our nation's first Secretary of State, and then later President. And this, I kept listening. Jefferson, born into a slave-holding, privileged Virginia family, identified slavery as sinful, but remained immersed in it until he died for his own life's comfort. He used his power over an enslaved woman in his household. Her name was Sally Hemings, who then bore him children who lived not as beloved offspring, but as his profit-making slaves, too. I kept listening Jefferson early on advocated for abolishing slavery, that part of our history many of us have heard. But Jefferson did not believe that white people and black people could, in fact, live freely together. The only path he saw to abolishing slavery was expatriation, to send the slaves away. At the root of it was his fear, a deep fear shared by his slave-holding neighbors that enslaved African Americans, if freed, would rise up and seek revenge on their oppressors. We have the wolf by the ear, Jefferson wrote, and we can neither hold him nor safely let him go. Justice is on one scale and self-preservation on the other. And I listened to the centuries-old story of how those who have shaped our country were shaped themselves by a reliance upon and a fear of African Americans. I listened about how the role of the free press was a source of fraught national disagreement, how Congress became polarized over the politics of the day, so much so that debates became brawls and duels. I no longer was stepping away from today's news stories. I was looking more deeply into them and seeing also that I must. Ours is an optimistic faith, one that looks toward the future. We define our Unitarian Universalist faith in many ways is covenantal instead of creedal. We challenge the status quo instead of preserving it. And this, we believe in progress. We believe in tomorrow and we work for it. The Unitarian minister, the Reverend Theodore Parker, in a quote made famous by the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King, said this, Look at the facts of the world you see a continual and progressive triumph of the good. I do not pretend to understand the moral universe. The ark is a long one. My eye reaches but a little ways. I cannot calculate the curve and complete the figure by the experience of sight. I can divine it by conscience. But from what I see, I am sure that it bends toward justice. Especially now, our Unitarian Universalist faith calls us to lead the way forward and away from the bubbling cauldron of angry nationalism and fear that is dragging us backwards. 
We are in a bruising tug of war, our fingers raw and curled tightly round the rope as we pull, resisting slipping into the muck of the past, instead pulling toward the greener grass of a future that is more inclusive, more just, more loving, more open, a future in which the whole human family, black, brown, indigenous, GLBTQ, all the ways we were born, all of us have a place at the table. In the midst of the turmoil, something new is being born, and something is dying. But to be midwife to something new, to help birth a step in our human evolution, means we must not just grab the rope tighter and pull forward. We must also look back. We must understand our history in order to really move ahead. This call to examine history is at the heart of the healing and justice work of the Unitarian Universalist Urban Ministry in Roxbury. Founded 190 years ago, the Urban Ministry is one of the nation's oldest nonprofits, and for 40 years of that history, we've been located on a deeply historic campus in Roxbury, the heart of Boston's historic African-American community. Our campus is located in John Elliott Square in a neighborhood where the Puritans gathered in 1631, where the Irish immigrants came later and then the Jewish immigrants and then the African-American community. It includes our flagship building, Boston's oldest surviving wood frame church called First Church in Roxbury. No longer home to a congregation, it was built in 1804, and it's the fifth meeting house on this site. This was the starting point for William Dawes' Midnight Ride of 1775, a ride parallel to Paul Revere's to warn that the British were coming. In this historic place, we do three basic things today. We serve survivors of domestic violence, support the education of young people of color from Roxbury, Mattapan, and Dorchester, and we serve our Roxbury neighbors. Here, we interrogate the past, and we also look with hope toward the future. We honor personal history. For nearly 40 years, we've operated our Renewal House Domestic Violence Shelter and last year launched a job readiness program for survivors. We begin by honoring a survivor's own resilience. This is the way the director of that program describes our work. Instead of erasing the trauma of abuse and assault, we encourage survivors to acknowledge their history and their strength in living through it. Survivors examine their own childhoods and ask, what was helpful, what hurt? What do I want to pass on to my own children? That recollection is painful, but it can break the cycle of violence. Naming history can change the future. To move ahead, we look back. We honor community history. Our youth program supports young people who have a drive to live into their own potential and future. In the midst of an unjust educational system that bestows abundance on suburban white children as it skimps on children in Boston, we seek to level the playing field. 
We provide tutoring and college preparation and college visits. We also celebrate the community from which our bright and determined young people come. We nurture a sense of history and place, training youth to research the history of our campus and of Roxbury, developing their skills as guides to lead historic walking tours. Among our guides is Jennifer, a high school junior from Roxbury, and she's a bright light. She spent last summer learning about Marcus Garvey, after whom the elder housing near us was named. She learned about Malcolm X, who once lived in Roxbury, about his time in prison, his conversion to Islam, his second chance, his transformational leadership. Her growing knowledge of the places she passes by each day and what they represent deepened her neighborhood pride. Sometimes, she said, people have negative ideas about Roxbury. She now knows the deeper stories of strength and resilience there. And she said, each of us has a responsibility to do likewise about our own communities, to learn our history. If you're going to live somewhere, she told me, you should know about it. By looking back, she propels herself forward, and who knows how far she'll go. And examining the history of race in America is foundational for our community engagement work. Dismantling racism is not about personal guilt. It's about education and understanding. In her book, So You Want to Talk About Race, the African-American author Ijeoma Alau described the chasm in historic understanding between white people and black people in responding to the Black Lives Matter movement. Alau writes, if we want to understand how experiences and sentiments between police and communities of different races could be so different, we must first understand the historical relationship between police forces and communities of color. Alau describes how police forces, especially those in the South, grew out of night patrols, whose primary charge was controlling black and Native American people and slave patrols, whose primary charge was catching escaped slaves. Out of these grew our modern police forces. Alawa writes this, Our early American police forces existed not only to combat crime, but also to return black Americans to slavery and to control and intimidate free black populations. Police were rightfully feared and loathed by a black Americans in the North and South. Our police force, she writes, was not created to serve black Americans. It was created to police black Americans and serve white Americans. This history is not about individual police officers. Rather, it's about the system they and we inherit consciously, unconsciously. History illuminates this moment in time. Police, prisons, health and wealth and educational disparities all call for an examination with an historical lens. Brian Stevenson, founder and executive director of the Equal Justice Initiative, which combats racial bias in the criminal justice system, created a museum that tells the story of lynchings in the South. He described why. 
In the American South, we don't talk about slavery. We don't have monuments and memorials that confront the legacy of lynching. We haven't really confronted the difficulties of segregation. And because of that, he said, I think we are still burdened by that history. We are still burdened by that history. To move forward together, we must look back. But we don't need to look down south to learn about deeply rooted racism and violence. Kevin Peterson of the New Democracy Coalition in Boston is calling for a hearing to rename Faneuil Hall. Who has heard about the effort to rename Faneuil Hall? So lots of people are hearing about it. Peterson, who is African-American, is a man of deep faith. He sees his work for racial justice as spiritual, religious, transformational work, the work of justice and reconciliation. I met with him this fall, and he shared that he began researching the history of Faneuil Hall when our country was still reeling from the white supremacist march in Charlottesville a year earlier. He found a letter that Peter Faneuil, the hall's namesake, had written that proposed building the hall. Faneuil was a mogul in Boston, and he wanted a place where men like him, businessmen, could gather for commerce. He even offered to pay for it with the body of a child. To fund the construction, he wrote, I am going to sell an African boy that I have. Peterson, reading that line, felt anger, humiliation, and pain. He imagined himself as that child. The foundation of the creation of Faneuil Hall on the back of an anonymous child, he says, insults the civic dignity of blacks and whites alike. Nearby Faneuil Hall was the building where slaves would continue to be sold long after. Peterson sees in this foundation of Boston's commerce a thread wending through history into today, where the racial wealth gap means that in Boston, the median net worth what we have after we subtract our debt from our assets, the median net worth for white households is $247,000, and for black households, it is $8. We don't know where this boy sold to build Faneuil Hall came from, whether he was torn from his mother somewhere near Boston, or whether he had come directly from the African slave trade. We don't even know his name. But we are now being asked to consider him, to reckon with that past and his story. We arrive this morning in tumultuous times when there is so much unrest so much anger, and so much disorientation. We watch for something new trying to be born in the midst of it, something new in which voices long hidden and silenced are finally raised up and heard, where we are all called to the table when we have reckoned with the past and can be freed from what still haunts us. 
This is painful and unsettling work. We may be tempted to get lost in the anger of our times or to turn away. We may be afraid. We may be tempted to vilify and simplify and simply react to the noise and the news. As people of faith, more is asked of us. We are asked to keep breathing in and out and finding our center in the midst of the tumult. We are asked to face the times in which we live and to face them with steadiness, with love, great, transforming, impossible love, and with knowledge to learn the real history of our nation's founding and trajectory, to deepen our knowledge of the past so that we can be guides in leading our world forward. I invite you to do that work with us at the Urban Ministry. Come and volunteer with survivors in our job readiness program as they move their lives ahead, even for one day. We need you. Come and take a tour with the youth in our history program. Come next Sunday after church for our Ties That Bind concerts celebrating Martin Luther King in our historic meeting house. Come and talk with us in social hour and learn the ways that you can visit, tour, attend, engage. Come join us in this place where we keep learning from the past and lock arms and walk together into a brighter and more just future for all. Amen and blessed be.